New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Joe Martinez, a PhD student in the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity in the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. He's here today to talk to us about his paper published on April 6th in Zookies. In this paper, he and his co-authors describe six new species of jaguar moths from Central and South America. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And what a cool topic. Let's just dive right into it. What in the world are jaguar moths? Because those are two animals that don't normally go together. Well, you know, the jaguar moth is a really interesting group. So these guys mimic tiger moths, but are endemic to the neotropics. So that's why I call them jaguar moths. Okay, and so what are what are tiger moths then? Well, why are these being called these names like tiger or jaguar moths? Is there something about the way they look? Yeah, exactly. So the, the way of the wing patterns are quite similar to tigers or, you know, big cats in general. Okay, and so do the jaguars then, are they known for their spots? Is that what these, uh, yeah, these, ex- butter, exactly. or these moths have on them? Yeah, exactly. It's just that these guys look quite similar to the rosettes in, in jaguars. So that's why I call them jaguar moths. Ah, that's really cool. And and how big are these things? Like, Give us an idea of like their size and their coloration. Well, they come in different sizes. So they, there's a, a small ones like a two or three um, centimeters, you know, on... Um, some of them are literally huge, like two or three um, inches. And you're just talking the body size here? Yes. Yeah. All right. So these are in the, a group called the noctuids. What, what exactly are noctuids? Okay. Well, the noctuids is the second largest group of lepidopterans in the world. So you have... And lepidopterans are butterflies and moths, Butterflies right? and moths, exactly. Um they have about 11,000 species known so far. But the most important part of these guys is that this group, a specific group, is that all of these species, or mostly of these species, are pests for something. Ninety From 80 to 90% of these species worldwide, they are pests for something, you know. Yeah, and they could be pests either in the adult form or in the larval form, right? So like in the caterpillar form or even as an adult, right? They're no, no, no. One or the other or the both. Mostly um, on the caterpillar form. There are some cases where um, some species are um, can be considered as a, as a problem in adult form, but mostly of them is But it's mostly the caterpillar form, form right? Yes. The larval form? Yeah. And where where exactly, let's talk about jaguar moths for this question. Where exactly are jaguar moths generally found, like the whole group of them? Are they strictly kind of Central South American group, or they have a broader distribution? Well, they they, they have a really uh, broad distribution in, in, in the Americas in general, right? So we have only one species in, in North America, 
the rest is in, in Central South America. Um, three other species in, in Mexico, that's it so far. Um, but the amazing part of this group is that in the, in the Andes, there specifically are the incredible amount of um, jaguar moths in there. And, and what do you mean by an incredible amount? Is it, well, I, the, I you said in the, the paper there are like 38 species of jaguar moths, right? So, yes. So what, what kind of diversity are we talking about? 20, 25 species going across the Andes? Yes, exactly. So the, most of the species are there. Um, so these are found at altitude then, right? Really, really high altitudes. Yeah. How high? Uh, we are talking about 3,000 feet. Well, sorry. And 9,000 feet to 11,000 feet. Oh, wow. So so really high up. You're talking three to 4,000 meters or so? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, we're talking like nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet. That, at that point, just to put it in perspective, we're, we're getting well above the city of Denver, which is only about 6,000 feet. So you got to go even higher up the mountain before you find these things. It's pretty cold up there. What are they doing up there? Well, this is a... a why am I really interested in them? Because it's a really rare group. And the diversity, it's based on the how many mo- mountains are in the area. So basically what we found in my research dissertation is that many, many species are literally divided by the by a mountain. So one of these cases, uh, you can see two or three species. We can see this in my, in my last paper, that there is literally two different mountain chains in um, Dominican Republic, and they actually have a different species there, just basically dividing for, for uh, three to four miles to each other, right? And so you said, you said that's in the Dominican Republic, so these are also found off in the Caribbean? Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. So, well, the, the amazing part is that we've, we found only these two species in, in the Caribbean islands in Dominican Republic. There's nothing related with that in Cuba or, you know, Bahamas or anything of the West Indies. So just one of the islands of the Greater one Antilles the then, islands, and, yeah. and then the rest of it's going to be found on the, the Central and South American, mostly South American along the, the high Andes, so all along the tops of the mountains there, right? Yes, yes, and that's, that's why it's an amazing, it's an amazing group, because you can see the island theory can be applied on them, basically. What are they doing up there? What are they, I mean, when I see pictures of the tops of mountains, that sort of thing, there's not a lot up there. So what is their ecological function up there? Where, where are they living? What are they eating? What are they doing? Well, both of these groups are related with oaks or um, pines, right? So um, basically they feed on the um, basil trees, I'm going to say that. And they feed for, they actually don't feed too, too much. They they are really quick in, the, in their life stages. As we're talking about like uh, in 10 to 15 days, you have the, the entire um cycle. Oh, wow. So yeah, I imagine at that altitude, then you have to take advantage of warm weather, which probably doesn't come around very often. So do they just lay their eggs and just wait for a year or so before they those eggs hatch? Or, or how are they doing this? No, they actually just wait for the um, warmer season. And after that, they just hatch 
do whatever I can do in, in literally 15, 10 to 15 days and after that is done. So, so then what is, the they lay their generation. eggs and then those eggs just sit there for a year? Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. Some of them, so that, some, that some species some... do that. So, some others, is they are more likely to have the entire cycle at the same same year, right? But some of them have changed on that. And we It's literally something that we recently know about these guys. Interesting. And, and so since you bring that up, how do you find them? You know, what, what kind of collection techniques do you use for these? Do you go out and just look for them by hand? Do you have to dig things up? How, how do you find these uh, jaguar moths? Well, we usually use the normal light trap collecting, right? So it's just using a, a sheet, a white sheet with a, a light on it. But um, So you're taking advantage of the fact that moths like to come to light. So you go up there at night, put up yeah, this like bright yeah, white sheet with the light on it, right? We find another way to, to looking for these guys. So we start using uh, UV lights, you know. Um, we didn't know that the larvae glows in UV light. And that's why we, we start looking for them at night. That's the easy way to, that's so to look cool. for them. Yeah. And all of them glow in, in, in UV light. Okay. So just so we're clear on this, you're saying the caterpillars glow in UV light. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So that's like scorpions and the like then, exactly, right? So if you exactly. go out looking for scorpions. We actually were looking for scorpions because one of my coworkers, they were looking for scorpions there. And that's why we know this. So you found it by accident, no by less. Ac- You're just yeah. like, wait a second. Wait, wait. What is this thing? That's not a scorpion. Yes, exactly. So I'm trying to picture you at... 9,000 feet, 3,000 meters elevation or something like that, walking around with the black light looking for a scorpion, and all of a sudden you're both are out of breath and get, oh, oh wait, wait, what is that thing? Yes. Uh, well, it, it, it was funny because um, we never expect that. You know, you, we mostly think that only scorpions, you know, glow in, in UV light. But there are other things that glow in UV light, other insects that glow in UV light, and it was amazing to see that. Yeah, that had to be an interesting discovery for you. Had anybody ever found that before? Did you ever see that in the literature before? Or is this new information? No, actually, I, I never found that. Well, uh, I've been, you know, reviewing everything about Lepidoptera in general. So, um, and I was concerned about because um, there are some people that say, tell, thinks that you be reflecting it's, it's a good thing and other people think that it's not. And some other people think that it. It doesn't matter. It's just something that happened. It doesn't have a function in in the insect. But it was amazing to see that, you know? It was something that just um, blow my mind, literally. Just so I can wrap my head all the way around this, because I'm so surprised by this, I did not expect you to say that these things are glowing under UV. That's just not something I associate normally with a caterpillar. Is it the caterpillars? Is it the moths? Or is it both? Oh, uh, in this case, specifically in, in my group, it's adults and larvae. So both. Both, both. will, will for yes. us. Oh, that's super cool. So now you can go out at night when they're not moving around a lot and just walk around and find scorpions while you're at it, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> now, when you were looking at these, how did you decide then that they were new species? Because obviously there's a, there's a pretty good group of these that are known. 
What was different about the ones you looked at morphologically? In other words, if you're just looking at them, uh, you know, the, the anatomy of these, how, how are you able to say, like, this is different from that one? Okay, well, Ryan, what can I say? When I start my PhD and I start working with this group, um, basically what I found was that during my um, evolutionary analysis, I found that this group is paraphyletic, right? So that means that some of the species comes from the same ancestor. So that's why I I start looking on, on these guys more closely, right? After that, what I found was that I probably 20% of those species were in different genera, but nobody worse than that. You know, there are people that have been working on the same group in Southeast Asia, on, you know, Europe, US, but nobody of them uh, have been working in, in neotropics. That's why I started working with this group. And then that's why I, I found these Jaguar bots, right? After, you know, so many years working with this group, I, I was able to identify these characters to, you know, to say that this is a different species or, or this is a different genus from the other one. Okay, so so starting at the genus level, you get to name a new genus in this one, right? La Fontaine. Yeah. And, and what specifically then made you say, I, obviously you had some molecular data. It looks like in your paper you you talk at least a little bit about a, a, a phylogeny with which is a tree of life kind of thing, with CO1, the barcode gene, right? Then when you get to looking at them, what made you decide morphologically? Like, what were you specifically looking at? Was it, was it patterns on them? Was it the proboscis? Well, what, what specifically, what are the, the physical characteristics you said, yes, like in your diagnosis, this is what makes this this genus versus that genus? What, what specifically were you looking at? Okay, well, in Lepidoptera in general, we use... Two, two different morphological characters. So the first thing is the the external morphology that they, they see if, if the wing patterns are similar or not with these groups. But the second thing and most important is internal morphology. We usually use male and female genitals to do that. So the male genitals are divided in two things. So the first one is bulbs, that they are pelvic uh, bone shape um, car um, structures, right? So these structures are in different shapes, different forms, and you can easily easily differentiate this this gen this genus or this genera in general from other genera. Okay, so you can look at the male genitalia, and you can just look at their their naughty parts, right? The little male parts. And you can say like, okay, this is definitely, this group of them, they're all fairly similar. This group, they're fairly similar. But these two groups are not that similar. So now we have a new genus on yes. that level, right? Exactly. Okay. So um, the second thing, we have the, the phallus, right? So the phallus is literally a, it's a, a long organ that you can, it's similar to um, like a python. A phallus, that would, be, that would be like a penis basically, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but the thing is that but a, it's a but little a bit But a moth different. version of it. Yes. Yeah, but a moth version of that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So basically, we have this phallus that is you can avert into the the uh, female um, genitals, right? So on literally the valves, its function is just to grab the the genitals from the female, you know, copulating. But for 
in the case of females, the females have only one huge organ. And this organ is the, um, it's divided in many things, but it basically is a huge organ that looks more like a, a balloon. So where literally the male injects the spermatozoids in there, right? So there's, that's the only way to identify in a really good manner uh, different genera. So for different species, it's a completely different thing. So there's a, this, there are so many other characters that we, actually we don't have time to explain every single one, but yeah, there's yeah. a lot of characters for, for a species. Cause for yeah, genera, yeah, I mean, you're it, looking at like the number of segments on their antennae. You're looking at little, little hairs on legs. You're looking at wing patterns and all sorts of things, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, there are some things that are literally subjective because for me, it can appear like a something, but for you, it can appear for something else, right? So that's why it's, it's really difficult to describe a new species. And um, mostly people use CO1 to, to see if there's really a, a new species or it's not a, a new species or something, you know, there's a lot of hybridization that produce different patterns. And this, these patterns, obviously, you can identify them as a different species, but it's not the same thing. So you're using the genitalia to figure out the different genera. So like the, this new genus versus the older genus. And you figured out like, okay, these are different enough. We're just going to, we, we have a new genus here. And then you're using a whole bunch of the external morphology, internal and external morphology, the, the anatomy of these things to, to tell the species apart. And now you've got this pile of them and you're like, okay, I think these are all different. These are all different. So now we got to put a name on each one. Uh, you pick the name of the genus because you're naming it after somebody, La Fontaine, right? Yes. So I name my genus after Donald LaFontaine, who is the one of the most notorious Noctuid guy in the world. Literally, every single thing that you know about Noctuids before the sorry, after the 20th century is from him. Yeah. So um, this guy, is, it's amazing. So he has been published a lot of papers. He has been working for four years in this group. So that's why I, I was wondering why nobody, you know, named something after him. When you get down to the species level, you have one that you named after uh, your sister. And then you have another one you named after the country where it was found, Honduras. And those are what we call patronyms. But then you have a a few species names here that are pretty interesting. So, for example, you have La Fontaine, the genus, and then you have Imama, La Fontaine Puma, La Fontaine Thuta, and then you have a different genus over here called Panthea Taina. Tell us a little bit about each of these names. So, let's start with Imama. What? Where did that name come from? Well, okay. So, you know, these they are jaguar moths. Uh, I mentioned. Uh, so, Imama means jaguar in in the Ibera language. So that's why I use that name for... And where, where, where do we find the Ibera language? Well, it's mostly from Colombia, part of, of Ecuador, but mostly in Colombia. So you used an indigenous word for jaguar. Yeah. You know, there was a, um, a recent paper that was talking about these uh, inactive language um, names for species, and I decided to start doing exactly the same thing. Very cool. And and I think puma comes from the same type of idea, right? So you're you're stealing puma 
not necessarily from a native language, but you're robbing it from somewhere else because of the relation to jaguars, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, basically, I using the Quechua language for that too, because uh, believe it or not, this this is the the largest um, La Fontana species there. That's why I put in puma there. Oh, okay. So it's not only it's it's the the general name for a big cat, but it's also now for the big moth. Yes, exactly. And I know that these are jaguar moths, and you seem to be showing quite a bit of tendency to be naming them after cats, but there's another reason why you're fascinated with them, cats. You told me this before we started. Why why the fascination with things that are cats? Well, the thing is that when I was in my bachelor degree, I started working with big cats, right? So obviously, for many reasons, I, 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 I can tell, uh, I couldn't keep working with them and I just decided to start working with entomology. So that's why I just jumped into the this huge war in entomology. But I was still frustrated about that. I, I couldn't work with, with the big cats. So then I found this group in, in the Neotropics. So and these guys are literally mimic and tiger moths. That there's another group related with the noctuids they have similar patterns you know like a literally like a big cat that um because they are endemic to the, in the tropics I, I i decided to call them jaguar moths yeah so it's like serendipity it's like i want to work with big cats but i can't but i'm going to work on the moths all named after big cats exactly exactly <laughs> And what, if you don't mind my asking, what part of Mexico are you from then? The where did where were you working on big cats or studying big cats? Okay, I I started working in well, I was born in Yucatan and I did my bachelor degree and my master's degree in in, in Yucatan. So during my okay. bachelor degree, I started working with jaguars in general. So then I jumped into the entomology when I got my master's when I was working with a completely different thing in ecology. So yeah, all the way back to the Yucatan Peninsula, you're working with jaguars, and now you get to work with jaguar moths. Yes. And then let's talk about a couple of these other names. La Fontaine Thuta. What is that about? Okay, well, Thuta is just means um, moth, literally, in the very language. So I just put moth because it's a moth, right? But, um, you know, mostly people use... Um, the species name to refer a, a morphological character in in some species, right? But in my case, I I want to be a little bit different with that, just because some people in I was gonna say general people don't understand what is that, right? So you name something after using uh, Latin names or Greek names, it's difficult for some people to understand what is that, but. What I'm trying to encourage here is that some people from those um, ethnical tribes, I'm going to say, can understand that we're trying to do something for them too, you know? Yeah, it helps raise awareness of these more indigenous populations as well uh, by using their words and their languages. Because to us, it's a new species, but to them, it's just another moth that they've always seen, right? Yeah, and, and it's something that is amazing to me is that specifically with this group, is that some of these species are um, restricted to small areas, right? So these small areas are like the Andes or some mountains in Guatemala or Costa Rica. And another thing is that they feed on, on 
raised plants, literally. So um, I, that's why I, I propose them as a possible endangered species at some point. And then you have one more, and this is in a different genus. It's in Panthea. You didn't describe this genus. This is not a new genus, but you have a new species in it, Panthea taina. Tell us a little bit about that one. What, is, what does that name refer to? Well, we have some specimens from uh, Dominican Republic. One of my friends, one, actually one of the co-authors there, um, he helped me to uh, identify this species because we thought it was the same species that was described uh, before, Panthea reducta, but we did the, the morphology and it didn't match with the, that species. We did use the CO1 or CO1 and gene because they were too old to do that. But we basically have a really good morphology to explain that these two are different species. Sure. And so what does the name mean? Taina is, uh, is the indigenous people that lives in, in Dominican Republic. So that's why I, I name it after that. And it's the, and actually, it's a, yeah, you know, trying to, to bring this uh, indigenous people to science. Yeah. Once again, trying to honor the people who probably saw this moth all the time. Yeah, <laughs> and and some scientists comes along. This is new to science. And they're like, no, that's the moth that we that keeps keeps trying to bother our crops. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's right. On that note, then, why are these moths important for people to know about? Why should people know about the jaguar moths? Okay, so I just gonna tell this story. When I start my PhD, I was I was a, a volunteer curating some of the, the mods there. And something that surprised me was that one of these groups of mods, they start decreasing in amount through the years. You know, from the 80s to the 90s, they were decreasing. And to the 2000s, I, I didn't found so many specimens in, the, in our collection. I was talking with the people there that it probably was because these that was a, a really bad year or, you know, but they were using exactly the same, you know, methods to collect all these species. I found that there was a decrease in the amount of, well, decrease in the number of, of individuals in, in, in our drawers, right? After that, I just decided to see what's, what's going on. What is amazing to me is that there are so many species that are getting extinct and nobody cares about that, you know. The insect decline is it's incredible. It's incredible. And you know, I was in, in Colombia in two different years. And the first year I got some species that I couldn't find in the second year because they were using different kinds of, you know, fertilize and insecticides there and that's the the main problem there right now. Yeah, and in addition, some of these are found at pretty high altitude. I assume climate change may have an effect on them as well, right? Literally, yeah. Yeah, so so far we know that the climate change is, is doing some really bad things in, in insects in general. And this group, obviously, as you said, is, is one of them. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time. This has been really, really interesting, finding out that caterpillars can glow in the dark, and that these things look like they have the color patterns of big cats and naming species after 
native languages and native peoples. So it's been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Brian, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Once again, Joe Martinez's paper is in the April 6th issue of Zookies. The title of the paper is A New Andean Genus, La Fontana, with descriptions of four new species and two new neotropical species of Panthea. See the episode details for a link to his paper. To learn more about Joe, follow him on Twitter, at Jose underscore I Martinez. That's at J-O-S-E underscore I-M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z. Or check the episode description to follow him on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast.